This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. It's the show about the most interesting people and stories of Mississippi. And I think we're earning that today. we got a great show. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey. I'm editor-in-large and editorial cartoonist with Mississippi Today. Look, I have the honor of chatting with two amazing Mississippi natives. Um, and I'm going to first sit down with Savoy Magazine's 2022 Most Influential Black Executive in Corporate America a winner and president of Mars Wrigley North America, Anton Vincent. And we're going to be talking a little bit about his latest position, his the accolade that he received, of course, and reflect on his time growing up here in Jackson, Mississippi as well. And uh, two things about Anton Vincent. Number one, he is the guy my parents wanted me to grow up to be. And two, Jermaine pointed out that he's about as close to Willy Wonka as we're ever going to get to meet uh, because he gets <laughs> to run a candy factory, which is incredibly well. And after Anton, we're going to have uh, the former first lady of Mississippi and author Julie Hines Mabus. She's going to talk about her latest book, Confessions of a Southern Beauty Queen, which I read over the weekend and is a fantastic book for many different reasons. And we'll touch on that as well. Anton, thank you and welcome to the show. Um, congratulations. You've you've had an incredibly great career. The MBA thing didn't work out for you, but I think everything else landed right in place. <laughs> yeah, it did. Well, first of all, Marcia, thank you. Thank you for uh, having me on your show. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan and I'm just happy for you know, all, all the dialogue that you bring uh, to fellow Mississippians. Oh, thank you. Uh, wow. Okay. What a great way to start off the interview in here. Uh, fantastic. Well, I'm a huge fan too. And, and I got to tell you, I, I was joking a little bit about my parents, although I think they probably would agree with that sentiment. But I've been a parent for a long time. And my 15-year-old, when I told him that I was going to get to talk to the guy who made Skittles, suddenly I became important. And I just want to let you know that. All the stuff I've done in my career, this is a big moment for me. So I wanted to say thank you. Oh no! Any time I can help you out, Marshall, I'm more than happy to. We, we may have to send uh, your, your your child uh, a little goodie bag just to make sure that she knows that dad's pretty cool. Oh yeah, no, I think uh, right there. Thank you, I appreciate. That. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, um, congratulations! Like I said, you, you've you've got a great gig. I know, uh, and you've had a great run too. I mean, just all the different things you've gotten to do and. Uh, it is interesting that you ended up in down in, and we'll talk about a little bit where you ended up into college because I, I lived down in Conroe, Texas. So I lived right down the road uh-huh. from Huntsville. So I know a little bit about that part of the world, too. So uh, very fascinating. But you grew up here in Jackson. You had four brothers, which, by the way, your mother must be an incredible rock star to have, uh, you know, that many men running around the house all at once. And uh, there had to be a lot of violence and broken stuff in the house. But your parents really were. Uh, are incredible folks. They're educators, they had high standards, and they really did put in some great standards into you boys, didn't they? Yeah, they really did. You know, uh, you know, every time I have an opportunity to talk to people, I, I think I had some of the best parents and one of the best communities in the world. You know, my parents were edu- lifelong educators between the two of them, probably 80 plus years, everything from early childhood education to really teaching PhD students as well in the university system also. And so, you know, there were a couple things that uh, that was pretty mandatory in our household. You know, we had to work hard. Um, we had to help people and treat people right, and we, we couldn't make excuses. And so I thought those were three pretty basic principles that I think have allowed all of us to, you know, go out into the world and do our thing and be authentic and good people. I was looking at the five principles of Mars, equality, responsibility, um, mutuality, efficiency, and freedom. I I kind of see a little bit of that rubbing into that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that was one of the things that actually drew me to Mars. You know, I, I had a great career at General Mills for a very long time, uh, spent some time in private equity. And then when I had this opportunity at Mars, you know, I was a bit taken away. You know, it's a, it's a huge company, $45 billion globally. Wow. You know, we compete in, in, in the confections business uh, with the largest pet care company in the world. We have a sizable food business as well. But I think one of its uh, distinguishing characteristics is that it's a very, very principle-based company. So those those five principles are not just words. You know, we, we really organize our strategy and, you know, how we treat people, how we treat our associates, how we treat our partners, uh, how we treat the earth and the world is uh, is very much wrapped into those five principles. You grew up here in Jackson. Where'd you go to high school? I didn't see that. I was just kind of curious. Well, well Marsh, I went to the best high school in Jackson, Mississippi, which is uh, William B. Murrow High School, 1400 Murrow Drive. And, and suddenly I hear cheering breaking out on that. So you went to Murrow. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about your experience there. You were an athlete, obviously. And did you do well in school also? Yeah, I did. You know, I was always a, I was always pretty good academically, and uh, you know, once I got to high school, I, I played for a legendary head coach, Coach Orsman Jordan, who uh, who passed away about ten years ago. Uh, and, and Coach Jordan, as many people know, just influenced so many people's lives on the court and off the court as well. But you know, having five brothers and being the fifth of five, you know, I was always looking up, and uh, I had a brother that played as a coach back in the early seventies, right when he first got to Mara, and uh, you know, it was always my this is that time my lifelong dream was to play for the Murray High School Mustangs uh, and to go and do great things. And Coach Jordan was just, you know, outside of my parents, was probably the biggest influence in my life. Uh, yes, athletically, but more about being a good person and about being a great man. And being a leader, too. I was going to ask, what things about leadership did you learn from him that you feel like you apply today? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I really loved about Coach, and I think anybody who played for him, you know, Coach coached from about 74 through 94. And, uh, you know, ask any of the four, 450 people to play for him. And Coach was pretty clear on one thing. Coach wanted us to build a mentality where we always gave incredible pressure, incredible effort under pressure. Right? That was his whole thing. And I think, and Coach never said this, but I think, well, if you learn how to do that, you know, you'll be fine in life and whatever you choose to do in your profession. And so I've I really taken that into my adult life, into my parenting and into uh, obviously my professional leadership life as well. It's just making sure, you know, under the under the toughest circumstances, you know, how do you show up? How do you lead? You know, how do you help others? And that has always been an essential part to, I believe, who I am and, and the kind of environment I try to create, uh, whether it's athletics or in the, in the professional world or in, in a mentoring relationships, which I have a lot of a lot of impact there. You have a great quote. It's from Billie Jean King's on your LinkedIn page. It says, pressure is a privilege. It only comes to those who earn it. I mean, that truly is something you believe, isn't it? I really do. Uh, you know, one of the things about, and I, I talk to my children about this a lot as well. One of the things about being, quote unquote, successful is that, you know, the bar is only gets raised higher. And so we say, you know, it never gets easier. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you got to learn how to do hard better. And so, that you know, the idea of pressure is... Um, it's a blessing. You know, if you're putting yourself in a position where you're, where you're under pressure, that means that you are doing something. You're being bold. You're pushing boundaries. And, uh, you know, learning to have the right kind of mentality around how to deal with it, how to push through it, and then how to, you know, how to succeed, I think is, is a pretty fundamental lesson in life. And so I, I was able to get that, I believe, as a young athlete, as a young person growing up in Jackson, having a fantastic community who had uh, not just supportive, but, you know, that they expected us to do great things. You know, my, my parents and their generation – 
you know, spent a lot of time fighting for civil rights. That's and right. so, you know, we, we were the benefactors of all that. And so our, our parents and our community had expectations of us as we grew up and as we, you know, went on to do our things in college and things like that. You and I are about the same age. I was just thinking, I know my class, when I grew up over in Atlanta, our class, I think, was probably the first integrated class. So you were right there early on amongst the first um, integrated classes in Murrow, weren't you? No, I was actually about 10 years later. So, okay, 10 uh, years, so, okay. Yeah, yeah. the decree in Mississippi, I think, was in 1972, when I think when the first schools were integrated. I graduated in 82, but it was you know, still okay. early on. Um, you know, the schools had been well integrated at that time, but, you know, we're still dealing with a lot of stuff. But I, I must say, and I tell a lot of my friends there, I have a very diverse uh, friend group, you know, all the time when I was at Mara, um, at a very integrated school, still primarily African-American, but never had a racial incident. Not, not not one, not not at school. Uh, so I just thought that was a testament to how, how all communities were trying to sort of you know move past Mississippi's past um, and help those children sort of get through a, a pretty a pretty transitional time period. Athletics was a big part of that, I'm sure. And of course, you were talking about you were always looking up, but you're six five, so I, I, your brothers must have been like huge, uh, you know. <laughs> well, <So>. I, <laughs> well, Marsha, I tell you, I'm the I am, I'm the tallest of my brothers, and I just remember, you know, I I, I hit a growth spurt right around. Ninth grade, I think I grew four inches in a summer. And so when my brothers came home from college and from the military, and you know, we just say we had a different relationship when they came home. <laughs> exactly, that was the good Lord looking out for you right there. He's like, okay, I'm exactly. <laughs> let them protect themselves. But that did transition to Sam Houston State University, is where you went to go play basketball, and that is in Huntsville, Texas, which is right north of Houston. A little bit that that had to be a little bit of a culture shock going to Texas after being in Mississippi. Yeah, not not really. You know, one of my oldest brothers, right when he uh, left college, he he actually settled in Houston. So I, I was oh, actually cool. fairly familiar. Yeah, I was actually fairly familiar with the Houston area. I had visited him there a couple of times, and uh, but but as you know, especially having spent some time in Conroe, you know, Huntsville is not Houston. Yeah. <laughs> so certainly not back at that time. Um, but no, you know, Sam Houston State has already had, always had a very rich uh, athletic tradition. I was able to get a scholarship uh, in my junior year. We won our Gulf Star Conference championship and went to Division Two national championship. We should have won the tournament, but we we just didn't play well at the right time. But it was it was an incredible experience, and not just athletically. You know, I, th- I thought I grew as a uh, a young adult. You know, I had an opportunity to have a lot of leadership experience when I was in college as well. And so I, I look back upon my college days very fondly. It was a very developmental time for me. You got a degree in business, uh, business administration, your finance. Uh, is that when the business bug hit you, or when did it hit you earlier? Yeah, you know, it's a great question, Marsh, because I would say when I was coming up, you know, I, I think like any athlete, particularly in Jackson, because we have such great athletes coming out of Jackson, you know, I, I, the NBA was always a dream for me. Um, but but business, you know, sort of bit me early. You know, I, I started taking accounting classes in high school. I was pretty good at it. Um, there's this one gentleman that really has, has influenced me, a gentleman named uh, Gary Bridgman. Gary was sort of the lead Merrill Lynch uh, financial advisor in town at the time. He was the only African-American, I believe, in the state of Mississippi. And I, I didn't know Gary intimately, but I, my, my older brothers sort of knew him. And, you know, we had an opportunity to have some exchanges. And he was always a bit of a North Star around what was possible for me. And so I thought that was just very, 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 very instructive for me as well. And so I think between that engagement and between, you know, figuring out that I had some aptitude, um, it really caught my book for me. You went and got your master's as well. And uh, you ended up doing that marketing. I actually have a degree in marketing. I was, I was just, I was laughing earlier about, you know, you are what my parents wanted me to become because I ended up going into journalism. But um, you, how did you end up in the food part of 
business? I mean, because you start early on. How did you end up getting into that? Yeah, you know, when I when I first came out of uh, college, you know, I was really bent on financial services. You know, back back to that influence from yeah. uh, from Gary, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm dating myself, but I, I actually was able to get on with one of the largest mutual fund companies in the world, which is Fidelity Investments. Um, so I went through training, and then my very first day, my very first day on the floor um, was um, the Kids, yeah, we had to pay for long distance. They're like, what's exactly. long distance? You know. But you remember we had these cards, right? We yeah. had the FBI card. And uh, so the gentleman that ran the business, it was a tremendous business. Uh, just took me under his wing and you know, showed me what he did and really gave me a vision around what was possible for me, particularly on the marketing side. So that's what actually spurred me to go back to business school, get my MBA in marketing. I, I interned between my first and second year MBA school at the Kraft Foods in Chicago. And then when I came out, I chose to go to General Mills. Yeah. And, and I mean, you had a great career. You got to uh, work in several of the different divisions. It kind of prepared you for, do, do you ever look backwards and say, okay, yeah, that prepared me for what I do today. That prepared me. What are some of the things that you did along the way in your career that you feel like that help you every day in your job? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I think the beautiful thing about a, a company like General Mills, you know, a very large company that, that competed in a lot of uh, food categories. And so you get a chance to have a lot of experiences under one roof. You know, I'll give you an example. I started off in the Betty Cracker division, you know, um, cookies, muffins, yeah. <laughs> you know, all, all, all the stuff that puts weight on you. And then my next assignment, I went to to market like kid snacks, like fruit snacks and things like that. And so, you, you know, it's 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 wonderful to be in a company that uh, has great has great ethics, uh, has great brands, uh, has very, very high quality and talented people. So you get a chance to learn and develop and sort of, you know, sharpen your own iron 
and continue to progress as well. And so that that was one of the reasons that I love the company and love my experience there. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think was pretty instrumental for me uh, was that I, I had an opportunity to participate in the acquisition of the Pillsbury Company in 2001. I was on that acquisition team. It was a $10.5 billion acquisition, you know, changed the profile of the company and really got me a chance to sort of see what an executive wing thinks about, you know, how do they start to build the pieces of a company over the long arc of time. And, uh, you know, I was right there center stage uh, helping out. Talk about, I mean, what, you came on, what, 2019 into Mars? I was trying to, I, I wrote I did. it. Yeah. yeah. So think about 2019, how different the world was then as it is today. <laughs> and you talk about Billy King's uh, quote about pressure. Uh, needless yeah. to say, you got hit by a global pandemic and the economic crash that followed it. Then, of course, the racial reckoning that happened as well. And you hear you're leading a major company and you're trying to navigate and help your employees and get everybody through that. Talk about that leadership experience and some of the things that you have learned from that experience. Yeah, it was tremendous. Uh, yeah, you know, I'll give you another twist as well. So General Mills is located in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. And at the time oh, the George right. Floyd incident yeah. happened, I was, I was still living in Minneapolis, St. Paul, sort of commuting to my my, my network area here in the New York City area. Uh, so there was a lot going on. I also had a, a, a African-American son who was a senior in high school, you know, coming to grips around what was happening. Uh, he participated in protests. And so we just had a lot of deep family conversation around what was going on in the world. So that was one thing on, on the home front. I would say from a Mars perspective, uh, you know, Mars is a private company you know, owned by the Mars family. Uh, outstanding family, does a lot of good around the world that, that most people don't know about. And, you know, I can tell you about conversations we had around, wow, you know, what does this mean for us? Uh, you know, how, how do we make sure in our own environment of 135,000 associates that we're doing the right thing, that we have the right intention, that we have the right purpose, and that, you know, we're attracting people for all the right reasons in our organization. So, you know, we, we, we did some things. We you know, donated money like other organizations. But one of the things I think we did that was differentiating is that, you know, we started to put infrastructure and resources in place, you know, to help us to um, get down our diversity journey, but do it over the long arc of time. Because we know when incidents like that happen, the cameras come and there's a lot of hype. And then, you know, a year or two later, you don't hear about it. And so the, the, the proud thing we're doing is making sure we continue to do the work to make the conditions better, uh, fairer, more equitable, uh, and making sure that we're trying to be a positive force in the world. I was going to say congratulations for the uh, Savoy Magazine accolade. That had to be incredible. How does that feel when you, you you get recognized like that on such a huge stage? Yeah, you know, it, it feels good. And I, I've been recognized for that same honor before, but it is one of those things that I just I, I don't take for granted. You know, as as an executive who happens to be African-American, that there's still um, too few of us. Um, and it's, you know, I, I'm always grateful for any recognition that comes my way because I don't take things for granted. But I, it is an acknowledgement that we, you know, we still have a long way to go uh, because, you know, most of the people that were um, honored, you know, we probably all know each other. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's still that small of a world. And no doubt there's progress. There's absolutely been progress as well. But I, what I would like to do is to have a world where um, while that recognition is interesting, it just may not be necessary at some point. Right. Uh, right. And so that, that, that would be the world I'd want my children, my grandchildren to live in. You, 
I'll be honest with you, your career, your life, I mean, it's an inspiration to me, but it's particularly an inspiration to, I would imagine, a 15-year-old in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, somebody who might have dreams, kind of wonders, you know, how can I get to where Anton is? What is the path on that? Yeah. Number one, what advice would you give to them? But number two, I, and I'm sure you do all kinds of mentoring and ways of being able to help people to be able to have the blessings that you've had, too. Talk a little bit about that process and what what advice would you give to a, a teenager in Jackson, Mississippi? who says, you know what, I want to be like him someday. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm, I might be a little old school here, Marsha, but I believe in education. I think, I think education is the foundation uh, of life uh, if you have an opportunity to get an education. Um, you know, one of the things, like I said, my parents did for me is that, uh, look, we, we, we had high expectations, uh, and my parents set those high expectations, and they enforced those expectations <laughs> when we were coming through. But also, you know, I had great teachers who, cared about me and who saw potential and who pushed me to do things that maybe I didn't think I could do or I didn't think about doing. So I would say, you know, you know make sure you take your studies seriously. Um, you know, do something that might make you feel uncomfortable. Do something that may, you, you may think that you're not that good at because that's how you develop is to do things that you, you know, don't have a concept of today. Now, I would say, secondly, I, I do believe in mentorship. If you see someone that is interesting to you, that inspires you, reach out. Um, there's, there's no excuse these days. I mean, when I, when I was talking about Mr. Bridgman, I had to sit down and write him a letter to see if I can get an internship. But today there's social media. Uh, this is a highly connected world. It should be easy to reach out to people. I, I know a lot of people like me, you know, if, if we have time, we'd be more than happy to have a conversation, uh, maybe to have a meeting, you know, just to offer some wisdom, maybe to make phone calls and depending on what those kids are going through as well. And so I think it's just tremendous. Uh, opportunity to really reach out and engage with people these ways. And I would say the third thing, and I'll I'll say this laughingly, but I'm very serious. Um, If if you do get into a mentoring relationship, listen to your mentor and execute. (laughs) Yeah. You know, know, kids are smart and it's like, I got a mentor. I'm like, well, but are you listening to the mentor? Are you executing with the mentor? Are you being timely? And those might seem like simple things, but simple things are important. Simple things that will build trust. Simple things that will build confidence as well. And so I always ask kids, don't take the basic things for granted because uh, some of those things will become embedded. People will expect you to do and execute and follow up. Um, but if you don't do them, sometimes you don't have a chance. And there's nothing that makes a mentor happy or to see that you're actually listening and doing the very things that the mentor suggests. I, I will say exactly. that I, I'm very fortunate. I have a 91 year old mentor that when I was a cartoonist in college, I literally went to go visit him. And, he, and ever since then, I have become exactly tried to become exactly what he is and I'm still short but I'm working on it. What yeah. advice what advice would you give? Okay, uh, say there's um to a, a young um young black professional who's starting out in the business because I know like when you got into the business too because it was back a couple decades ago but I mean you got into the business obviously there were some things that you had to navigate and some things that obviously were problems and so forth. What is what advice would you give uh to a young professional? Yeah, I think there's two things. I, I, I would tell you one of the mistakes I made, Marshall, was, uh, and I, I think maybe some of this is how I was socialized, maybe, uh, trying not to overanalyze it, but, you know, feedback really is a gift. And I, I would tell you, I don't think I really got that until I was probably a mid-career professional. Um, you know, when I started getting professional feedback, I, I took it very, very personally. Yeah. Uh, you know, I thought the person didn't like me. Um, and for me, you know, I'm a, I'm a proud Mississippian and, uh, you know, I didn't start my career in Mississippi. So I thought people had something against Southerners against Mississippians. So, it was, you know, it was, it was a high level of immaturity, I would sort of say, in terms of how I processed feedback. 
But I say conversely, I think what someone should do is to really listen to your feedback, you know, really assess what's real, how you can change and not change wholesale, but just make tweaks and still be your authentic self. Because if that feedback is good and right and true and well intended, it really is designed to help you to develop you and help you to put yourself in a position to do great things. So that's one thing. Uh, get, get comfortable with getting really good feedback. I think the second thing is to, um, and I, I think I did a pretty good job of this. I, you know, I, I would say I've always had a bit of a leadership orientation, and I spent a lot of time trying to think about what whoever I deemed the leader was. Like, what do they think about? What's on their mind? Because I wanted to put myself in their mind. I felt as I can put myself in their mind, I could better produce in a way that was going to add value. So, I, so I would say, really reach out to people, ask questions. Um, I think it's so much easier these days to do it. I certainly didn't know I was coming up as well. But you, you have to have an active mind. You have to have a sense of engagement. And I go back to what I said earlier. But you got to listen. <laughs> you yeah. got to listen, and you got to you got to execute. And then, lastly, I would say, and you know, I say this to a lot of young professionals: there's no substitute for performance. I don't care who you are. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what your orientation is. You got to perform, and you got to perform consistently. And and because that's where that's where you put yourself in a position to have a great conversation about development, about advancement, uh, and about whatever success looks like for you as well. So I, I think consistent performance is really the lifeline in terms of putting yourself in a position to do great things. Anton, I'm respectful of your time. I have loved every single second of this. I could talk to you probably for another three or four hours about things, but I just appreciate you taking the time today to talk to us. Oh, no, it's, it's my pleasure. And uh, look, I'm, I'm praying for all the residents in Mississippi and particularly in Jackson with the water crisis. I've been following quite a bit and trying to contribute, but uh, I, I know we'll pull through. I know what kind of people are, are in our hometown and our home state, and I'm just really pulling for them. Amen. Amen. Thank you again. It's been an honor. And I told you that this was going to be a great show. And I bet you didn't believe me. And you listened to Anton and you're thinking, OK, this is a great show. Well, guess what? It's going to continue to be great because we have a fantastic guest on right now. Former first, you probably recognize the name Julie Hines Mavis. She was the first lady of Mississippi a few years ago. Uh, CPA, she's definitely made a big difference helping in the philanthropy and, of course, in the world of helping people. But she has got a fantastic new book out, and it's called Confessions of a Southern Beauty Queen. It is an incredibly beautifully written true story. And on the air with us right now is Julie Hines Mavis. Julie, number one, when I saw you at the book festival, I had no idea at the time that I was going to get to visit with you. And I'm totally excited. And I got to read your book over the weekend, and I absolutely loved it. Well, Marshall, first of all, it's so good to talk to you again. You've always been one of my favorites. Oh, well, thank you. Um, you're most welcome. I'm so glad. And I know you got the book rather recently, so thank you for reading through it. Um, have you ever been um, – in the building Fentress um, on the Ole Miss campus. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, it, I was a, took pottery here 50 years ago. It's now the home of the uh, School of Liberal Arts. And I'm sitting here with Holly Reynolds, who is an associate dean, and uh, Pat Spear, uh, whom I went to college with and who was helping me uh, do some promotion for the book and got me on your program. So I just wanted to mention that. But thank you very much for um having me on your show it's this has been quite a quite a ride for me now ventress is incredible you've got the little staircase it's got all the signatures in it right if i remember that's right yeah that's right that's right it it um it ceased to be the art building and became uh the liberal arts building in in the 90s so um it's fun coming back in here and seeing it's a beautiful building you know what holly has Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, sorry about that. Um, I, I'll tell you when the book won me over. I'll tell you it was on page me, 50, 59. And 
you know, I mean, I've known you for a long time. I know you're incredibly sharp. I knew you were very gifted and very talented and had a lot of energy. I did not know to what level of a great writer that you were. And this paragraph, which I absolutely loved, because, I mean, by this point, because the book is such a wonderful glimpse back into a time because you paint beautiful pictures with your words, but it's also a really incredibly powerful book about the effects of multi-generational trauma on people and those effects on trauma on people too. And anybody knows anything about childhood trauma, you're reading this and you're going, ah, that makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. But I love this right here. Patsy loved the struggle between the fading light and the growing darkness when the dying sun slips below the horizon, leaving a a fiery backdrop in the western sky. From her special room up in her apartment, she could see the stark silhouettes of the naked hardwoods dancing in the west on the banks of the Mississippi River. Early in the year, stubborn leaves clung to the trees. Later, early spring foliage would begin dressing the limbs of the oaks and the other hardwoods. But at these winter sunsets, it was the starkness of the red sky behind the black leafless branches she loved so, her dancing ladies. Oh, my God. Okay, so you are an incredible painter, and you use words. You know, it's funny. I All my life, when I was doing other things, um, I loved to write. And so I would always be fussed at by my bosses. Julie, you, you know, you're not supposed to be writing things here. You just get the facts out. But um and I knew my, my father always said, "Girl, you got you know you got to make a living." So I never thought I had permission to write. Um, all of when I was involved in politics, I wrote speeches and loved it. And so this was the first time I left the country and I went down to Belize in 2019. And through circumstances, I stayed for about a year and a half. And I was right there on the Caribbean, a little um, Ambergris Key, little town of San Pedro. And I had a, a mishap down there. A friend of mine left, left me down there. I rented an apartment, and I called my friend. We'll call her Patsy. Um, and just to kind of cry on her shoulder a little bit, and we started talking. And she's st- telling me the story of when she was seven or eight in the school in Memphis and how this 19, 18, 19-year-old girl um, took advantage of her for a whole year. And I said, you've never told me that before. I'd known her for about 30 years. And she said, I've never told anybody. Those words have never come out of my mouth. And I said, honey, we got to, you know, I need to write about this. May I, may I write the story? And she said, yeah. So it's like I, I was given permission to write. And every day we talked for an hour or so in the morning. And then I would set up my little computer and I would type for the next four hours. And it was so freeing. And the words just flowed out and her story got more and more complicated and I started with research and about Memphis and the Memphis soul sound because she was right up in the middle of it and she gave me as big a gift as I don't know maybe I gave her a gift but anyway it was a very freeing and I, I realized at that moment how much I loved to write. And so, she, she's still alive. She's 76 years old now, right? She's 76 years old. Yeah. I speak with her. I speak with her regularly. It's been, you know, I was in the position in some ways of being an unskilled, untrained therapist. And a lot of stuff came out uh, between us and about her experiences as we wrote the book. And, um, you know, most of it good. But, um, you know, she, she lived a pretty over-the-top life yeah. um, in many ways. And, and did after, this went through her first 22 years. And her life after that, you know, I said, we need to do another one if you're ever willing, because it's 
some of her experience have, have been mind-blowing. You you had put it succinctly, I think I read in another interview, said the damage came out sideways, which anybody who's ever dealt with trauma knows that that can happen through, you know, self-medication and some other things, too. Um, and, yeah. well, it's, it's, you know, her father was an alcoholic. And yeah. Lots of debate about alcoholism, whether it's, it's, you know, in the nature of things or whether it's what you were raised in. Um, but she's, um, I would say she's prone to an addictive personality, and it's come out. But in those first 22 years, it was just survival for her. And her friend, um, the, you know, the Memphis Sound through Stax Records, she very serendipitously became friends with him, and he took her under his wing, a man named Steve Cropper. And so as a way to, um, I don't know, soothe her, you know, troubled life, he didn't realize what he was doing by saving her. She sat at Stacks Records in her throughout her high school and part of her college years, listening to um, and watching Otis Redding and Isaac Hayes and Sam and Dave and Booker T and the MGs watch them produce their records. And so that was an outlet for her uh, that helped her and soothed her as she tried to navigate through not only the waters of her um, childhood, but the trauma that she sustained when she was at MSCW. Yeah, uh, unbelievable. I mean, you, first of all, you talk about her father. I mean, here he was. He was on. He was in the army, and he was on Okinawa, which was one of the bloodiest and most terrifying bloodiest. battles of World War II. Right. So, you know, he didn't come home different than her mother, who had suffered trauma watching her sister get run over, get killed, get killed mm-hmm. right before her very eyes, which also caused trauma in her in her grandfather too. I mean, in her exactly. father as well, who became an alcoholic. Right. You know, and so I mean, you look at all the things, and then on top of that. She was growing up literally in a polluted pond. I mean, you think yeah. about what the things that she was facing societally. Uh, and then also when she went to that haunted house, terror house of an elementary school. Elementary school. Oh, my Lord. I mean, I I'm know. seriously, you could not have, if you'd have written this, I would have said this didn't happen. Um, she know. just had some incredibly bad things happen to her. But she was so sweet and naive, and she had good people in her life, too, that kind of buoyed her and kept her going. They did. She, she had a close friend at MSCW who was very a Jackson girl, very sophisticated, and put words to what she was feeling about um, the way the, the young um, three black young women who were the first to, to come into uh, MSCW and helped her get through the times, you know, the changing times of the 60s. Patsy didn't understand any of it. She just knew things weren't right. Yeah. Um, and, and her mother had never taught her anything. Her mother, all she ever did was try to keep her away from boys because she was so beautiful. Um, and so she was totally naive and totally uh, kind and loving and giving and didn't understand the things that were happening around her and never thought bad of anybody. So, it, you know, it was quite a combination of what she'd been through um, and her own you know, inner soul and her own naivete. And then, you know, we face, um, this was written in a pre-Roe versus Wade setting. Yeah. And um, in 1963, and um, there was uh, an abortion that was um, originated, I will say, in the the, the situation originated in, in Memphis, but the abortion took place in a little backwoods place in North Mississippi. And so now we have these times with the post-Roe versus Wade. There's 
so much that's Southern and so much that's of the 60s, and yet it's all transcended because it's so relevant today in the divisive society that we have going on today. Um, there's a lot, a lot of commonality. Yeah, that was that was one thing that did impress me about the book. It was that it, it felt very modern, even though it I was – I mean, it, obviously, I mean, it, if you love architecture, if you love – uh, music, if you love history, I mean, there's all those uh, components in your right. And like I said, you could tell the things that you were very passionate about when you were writing about it. But yeah, that abortion scene was very tough. And and um, it was. And, and and you know, like I said, you realize once again yet another layer of trauma that she was dealing with. But her talent and her ability to somehow she she discovered that she could win people over once they quit bullying her, and, and that she she, she had a superpower. She, and you know it's funny. It's her beauty and that superpower stayed with her. And I've often said, was it a a gift or a curse? Her beauty. Yeah. And she said, I don't know. I said because you know, in many ways, you've never learned how to do. She was a great. I will say this. She was a great counselor at one time in her life. And wow. things changed. And she. I mean, she people were lining up to see her. But I said, you've never had to. When you were a counselor, you gave and you gave your all, but you've never really had to ask anybody for anything. It was always given to you. And I think that kind of beauty is as much of a curse. I mean, she was Elizabeth Taylor beautiful and a figure. And I think that causes um, as many problems in the long run as it does the joy of being the center of attention. And she'd walk in a room and people would just stop and stare at her. Um, so, you know, with that, that, that's an interesting issue right there about beauty. Is it a, you know, is it a burden or is it a gift? Definitely. Um, the thing about, okay, she had raw talent. She had beauty. She was an innocent soul, literally would look around to other people to help her navigate through some, some of the simplest things in life that maybe she wasn't prepared for. Um, but her time at the W ended up being almost, um, just a, a problem that she couldn't overcome. It was, um, you know, the woman that came in as um, the dean of students, she came in um, Patsy's junior year, and she was, she had a an intelligence background with the U.S. Army. Oh, wow. And when she, when she came in, she was uh, determined to clean up what she thought were great mistakes that were going on at the school. You know, it was, this was the time of, you know, Haight-Ashbury and, and – and the uh, Voting Rights Act, and a lot of things going on, and she was against it all. And she saw Patsy as a um, a, 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 a puppet for her to tell on all the Delta girls and the Jackson girls that were sneaking out of the dorms and going to find their boyfriends. And um, Patsy got into it and tried it a couple of times, and the dean brought her in and said, uh, you're going to tell me who's doing this. I want to know. I want names. And she said, no, I'm not going to tell you anything. And she thought that was the end of it. So, you know, long story short, the woman kept her from being Miss MSCW. She was told by the, one of the judges. And she brought her in. She she tormented her, basically. And eventually, when nothing had an impact on her, she and the um, head of the student body came and took her from her I will use the word abducted her from her dorm and took her to the infirmary, the la- her last two weeks of school, and put her in the infirmary and told the nurse to keep her there. 
And, you know, she was so naive, she didn't even ask why. And um, a lawsuit pursued and, you know, a, a courtroom drama. Um, and she, you know, just an, a, one more story to her naivete and the fact that she was um, uh, raised by a single mother in Memphis with no great reputation or strings or, or pull in Mississippi. The dean thought she could intimidate her and bully her into talking. And she found out she couldn't. And... Um, a nightmare ensued, Patsy. Yeah, what was it about? I mean, seriously, she encountered some of the cruelest people that, I mean, you could come up with from cent- yep. central casting. What was it about her that, you know, was it the, her beauty? Was it the naivety? What was it that seemed to, she was like almost like flicking on a light and bugs being attracted to her? It was exactly like that. And for, for boys and men, it was like that. For women, they hated her because she was so beautiful. So men tried to control her. Boys tried to control her. Women despised her because of her beauty and her talent. And it was in the extreme. And um, I think that's, you know, does it all go hand in hand? Was it coincidental? I don't know. But it was consistent throughout her life. And what... Like you said, the music, the her talent and her love of that, that's what enabled her to cope. It is exactly what enabled her to cope. She would tell me stories, and they were reflected, you know, in, in the book of just sitting there. And Steve would come in, and he'd walk over and say, you know, that's the way we make a, that's the way we make a song. Or, you know, just having Otis Redding stand there. She um, was in the studio before Otis died, oh. when they were doing some riffs and whatnot for Trial Tenderness. And um, short time later, he went up in that plane about, about you know, a couple of weeks later, went up in that plane, and it crashed in that lake, I think, in either Minnesota or Wisconsin. And, um, you know, just the history, just the things that she witnessed and that carried her... You, you, Throughout her life, her record collection, and she still uses CDs, is phenomenal. And um, I think it still carries her through today, through this period when she's been um, almost like the lance has been, the boil has been lanced. Um, the music has helped her get to this period of, 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 of my writing the book. I was going to ask, I mean, number one, what was her reaction when she read the book? And number two, has, she, it, has it allowed her to heal and gain a little bit of ex- acceptance of just the incredible life that she's truly lived? Well, initially, when I was writing the book, she was, um, I, she still needed, she wasn't quite fully recovered, if I can put it that way. Yeah. And uh, so, and I, and I sat down with her and I have a picture of, my reading the document to her when I was in Memphis several years ago. And, you know, when it all came out, and I think the hardest part for her really was the abortion because she said, I don't want my daughter to know. And I said, I said, you are, you know, that's the most, one of the most important scenes because at this time, and this is before Roe v. Wade was, was uh, uh, upturned. I said, we're in a time when this has got to be on the forefront. And she just said, I, I can't do it. And, she, and sometimes she said, this is just too gut-wrenching. And that's, at those points, I felt like I need to be a, get her to a professional. But at the end of the day, she, when it came out and some of her close friends read it and they said such wonderful things about it, she relaxed and she understood 
how important it was. And I'm very, very grateful for that. I mean, I found the book to be incredibly helpful. I think anybody who's ever dealt with childhood trauma or dealt with that and then later on in his adult and you read that and you just realize, okay, this person is somebody whose incredible strength is a some something that I'd like to try to replicate, but also B, it what an example too. And and I mean I really like I said, I, I had great respect for her uh throughout the book on that. Because it was just like it just shows you that literally that the good Lord helped her survive by giving her that gift. Uh, you know, w- when I was the long hours I would spend trying to calm her down, I said, "Don't you understand what a hero you are?" Yeah. You know what? What, what you you this this can set such a standard for uh, childhood sexual abuse and the trauma that you went through with the abortion and the trauma that you went through through all the ter- twists and turns of the civil rights movement. I said, don't you understand? She said, people are going to hate me. I'm going to be vilified. Look at all these people in the country that are so crazy about this. I said, no, you're you're a standard bearer. bearer. And so we've come to that. She's She's getting there. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Like yeah. I said, you know, there was so much change going on societally at that point. And here she is being knocked from one rock to the next. And yet yeah. she's still going. I mean, that's incredible on that. Uh, congratulations about to say on getting it published. And congrats to the University of Press of Mississippi for taking that chance on you on your Absolutely. first manuscript. Uh, Absolutely. How, how did it come about? Did you just say, hey, you just call them up and say, I, I think I've got something for you? Well, I, I this was, I guess. I came back from Belize in 2018, knowing that I had to do something. Uh, you know, I had to get some help somehow. Get some help, and so I found out you had to have an agent before a public before a publisher will listen to you. And so I knew the folks at University Press, and I um, I, I called Craig, who is the the director and uh, executive director, and I said, I've got a manuscript, and um, I would like for somebody to, you know, I, I don't know what to do. And he said, Well, send it to me, and I said, Okay, and then about. Three months later, I guess it was November, in February, I got a call uh, or an email, and they said, we want to, we really are interested, and I was just flabbergasted. It was, Marshall was 400 pages then. I mean, you know, yeah. and, and so they they weeded through, weeded through it and saw the little jewels that were in there, and that's what started the prophecy. And I said, if you want to do it, I would be so honored uh, for University Press, and um, I also have a friend, well, well, Pat, who's with me, who's helped me promote the book. Um, he has a friend named Bruce Kelly, who was with Reader's Digest. He was like one of the top people at Reader's Digest, and Pat sent the book to him, and he made some beautiful comments about it. So those early days were really, um, I was vulnerable, I was scared, but I was determined, and I had enough people that were um, encouraging me. Uh, including Craig. So it's been it's been a wonderful process. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. We're out of time, yes. but I know folks can get this book anywhere that all books are sold. It's called Confessions of a Southern Beauty Queen. It's fantastic. And congratulations, Julie. And one thank you for listening and thank our guests, Anton Vincent and Julie Hines-Mabus for joining us today. And if you'd like to hear this show again or any past episodes, you can listen to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or on our MPB public media app. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio. It's produced by the incredible Jermaine Flood. Y'all have a great week. We'll see you next Monday. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.